You know, population growth and sustainability are two things that often don't easily go together. But they are realities or challenges that uh, all levels of government have to deal with. And when it comes to politicians talking about how to make things greener and climate goals, quite often it becomes very vague when you think of actually taking any sort of action. Well, this story comes out of Vancouver Island in the Victoria area where a municipality is going in, arguably, the right direction. The municipality has approved a new project it hopes will meet its housing and climate goals, but the development's neighbors are now raising some concerns. We're talking about Saanich, the district of Saanich, where a new council unanimously gave the green light to a nine-unit townhouse project. Okay, everything good so far? Here's the catch. There's no parking. No parking for any of the residents. And uh, it's going to be an agreement. If you move in here, you are not relying upon a vehicle to be parked at your home. Well, innovative idea or not, um, it is one of those things that is being talked about uh, with some of the neighbors, not too terribly happy with what they think is going to be a problem. But others may take a look at this and say, yeah, this is spot on. This is a direction we should be going in. And kudos to the developers. Let's bring in Julian West. He is the founder of Urban Thrive Developments. Good afternoon, Julian. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us, and you are the force behind this project, you and your team. And, uh, you know, where did the concept come from uh, when it comes to parking? Yeah. Um, Well, actually, you framed it up really well. Um, This is part of a much broader trend towards how do we create sustainable communities? How do we meet our climate targets? to you know, reduce emissions by 50% by 2030, hit net zero by 2050. Um, my business partner and I explored a bunch of different models for how can we move forward sustainable community design in a, the most meaningful way that we could think of. And this concept uh, was it, where we landed, and it, it clearly hits the mark on hitting our housing and climate goals. Um, by far the number one source of emissions in our region it's personal vehicles. It's more than double any other source. Uh, and the second highest source is uh, residential fossil fuels, which we've also taken out of this proposal, uh, and we've gone completely fossil fuel free. So those two things make up 57% of our emissions in our region. You know, Julian, it seems to me it's almost a direction we're going in. I was talking with Phil, who's looking you know, producer here, technical producer, and uh we, he, he's looking at different places around the city of Vancouver. And when it comes to uh, apartment condos, it is rare to find parking uh, in the city. Myself, looking in the suburbs around Vancouver, uh, when I moved into our townhouse in the Cloverdale area, there were two parking spaces. Now, most of the developments in my neighborhood have one. Um, So it is a direction that they're going in, I think. But you seem to be taking this one step further and a bit ahead of the curb. Do you see others expressing some interest in this and uh, possibly picking up on what Urban Thrive has been doing and bringing this into the lower mainland? Yeah, we're definitely um, sort of at the tip of the spear on this. 
right? Um, which is, I think, what's kind of created the, the buzz about it. But this is really just part of a much broader trend. There are more than 200 cities across North America that have removed parking requirements completely from some part of their region or citywide. Edmonton and um, Toronto are notable Canadian examples, and that list keeps growing. Uh, I think very much this can move into the Vancouver region. Um, I would say, though, like, I, like I'm not expecting a whole bunch of developers to follow suit with us. They look at us as a little bit of a black sheep. Uh, for them, it's a bigger audience to provide parking, right? Like we know we have uh, a niche, uh, but a very passionate niche that really understands this lifestyle. So to kind of put that a little bit into perspective, uh, like there's tens of thousands of people in the greater Victoria region that live car-free today already. I'm car-free, one in five households in the city of Victoria is car-free. Moto has 28,000 members across British Columbia. Their membership grows 15% a year. Their car share members, 80% of them are car-free. This is something that's already happening. It's a niche, um, and most developers will prefer that, you know, to serve that, you know, four and five households that do have a car. So I think it'll take a while for the industry to kind of pick this up, but it's certainly the direction that we need to be going if we're going to meet housing and climate goals. Well, the District of Saanich, for those that know the geography of the area, um, I guess technically it may be suburban, but it really isn't that suburban. You're very, very close to downtown Victoria. Um, And when I hear of townhouse developments like this, my, you know, that uh, may not have any parking, um, I'm going to ask you this question. How far out from a central business district, you know, your downtown core, how far out could you probably go and still have this type of townhouse be viable? Yeah, no, it's a perfect question. Um, I would ignore like 95% of Greater Victoria for this kind of project. It's so location specific. This area specifically is perfect for it. It's a super walkable, bikeable location. It's on several frequent transit routes. We're on the all ages and abilities uh, cycling route. There's multiple moto car share vehicles in the area. Evo car share is also in the area. It is packed with amenities, parks, schools, rec centers, major employers. It's all right there. Downtown is 12 minutes by bike, uh, eight minutes by bus. Like it's, it's so perfect for the car free lifestyle, but most of Saanich, we wouldn't, we wouldn't look at doing this proposal. We're very selective about the type of land we would use for this. And it's honestly on a block by block basis. Like for, for us, one of our criteria is having a completely seamless connection to the all ages and Billy's cycling network. Um, so that might work on one block, but not the other. So we're very selective. Well, for sure, it's a rethink also on uh, how you do live. I go back to um, the old days, the olden days. But uh, <laughs> it used to be that uh, you would have a home and it would have the space for two cars and a long driveway and a big front yard. I'm talking about the single detached homes, you could basically yeah. put a motor home in front of it uh, or, you know, uh, or your tent trailer. Um, talking from, yeah. you know, previous memories. Those yeah. days are disappearing, I think, especially when it comes closer to the cities. But um, I wonder if it is only for one generation. Is it that you are targeting a younger generation or are you finding that people maybe even older, older than 55, might be interested in this way of living? 
Yeah, great question. Um, when we started this, we actually didn't really know. There was some reasonable data, but not really concrete and not very tone, like honed into our region. So one of the things we did when we started this project was start a wait list. We're at more than uh, 70 families on that wait list now. It's actually much higher than that because since we got approved, we're getting new ones every day. Um, and part of that is we collect data around who are you, right? Do you have kids? How old are you? What's your main mode of transportation? What features are you looking uh, for in a home? And that's really helped sort of shape our design. And uh, we've been kind of blown away around by the diversity um, of different demographics that are interested in this, including people uh, who are in retirement age. So one of the homes we're providing is actually a barrier-free adaptable design for people with uh, mobility impairments or uh, who want to age in place. And we're actually shocked by how much demand there is for that kind of housing in a residential neighborhood because it's, it like almost doesn't exist right now. And there's just a, a lot of people who actually just can't drive a car it, like because yep. of age, because of uh, some kind of disability. Um, and then for a lot of people, it's just a personal lifestyle choice. Well, we've been talking with Julian West, who's the founder of Urban Thrive Developments and uh, the force behind a new development on Vancouver Island in the district of Saanich that has nine townhouse units. But guess what? No parking spaces. None. So with that, uh, there comes, well, maybe uh, some different sorts of uh, challenges, but definitely a different lifestyle Plenty of phone calls. Julian is staying with us. I want to get right to them, like Glenn in Maple Ridge. Glenn, what's your thought on this? Uh, you have no problem, really, do you? Hey, Bruce, I have no. If people want to buy a place without uh, parking, I mean, that's their choice. I got no problem with that. But the logistics of it, really, if you think about it, that means that you're you're you're, you're living your whole life within that within that area. You're never traveling anywhere else. You're never going to pick up a a bigger a bigger item from a store that you cannot pack on your bike or or or, or bring onto transit. So you're you're using mo uh, whatever the car rental things are that are in the street. So those are taking up space. Also, you're taking into consideration that you that any guests that you may have that come from out of the area have nowhere to park, have to pay for parking somewhere in some downtown parking lot which might discourage people from coming out. My son, for example, lives in one of these new high-rises in the, in the Wally area of, of Surrey, yep. and there's no parking there. It's all paid parking, well, and you have to run down at feet Glenn, the let's meter. let's pick up and- on those, because uh, the second part especially was one of my questions. Are we uh, kind of putting some of the pressure on neighbors uh, when we, you know, people do visit, and uh, you may have your own lifestyle, and I think Glenn makes a perfectly good point. But if, um, you know, uh, you want to go and visit a relative living here, you may want to drive. Uh, what sort of message are you sending out? Julian, uh, how are you dealing with these uh, questions? Yeah, uh, a few things there. Uh, so uh, quickly on the visitor parking piece. So like, we're talking about nine homes, right? So a typical development of this size would require one visitor parking spot. Um, it's quite a large uh, frontage that we have on Allenby Street. There's actually two spots for visitors and community use there, plus our car share vehicle, uh, plus a loading zone for deliveries and taxis and that kind of stuff. Plus, one of the beautiful things about Moto Car Share is it's like not just for these residents, it's for community use. 
And in fact, the data shows uh, a moto car will be used mostly by neighbors in, in the area. So uh, there will be people in the neighborhood who are dropping a second or third car or maybe going car free because they now have this option to use this car share vehicle. So it's actually all the evidence we have suggests that uh, we'll reduce pressure on street parking, not increase it. Appreciate the phone call, Glenn. Let's go to Ash in Vancouver, who also uh, has kind of like the insight into a need for cars. Right, Ash? Well, yeah, I, I also believe I can just pretty much everything that Glenn said, I can just pretty much repeat exactly that. But on the same thing, I can go like it's North America, everything our society's built. It was built around the car, so we kind of need it. And any, if you, I used to take the bus and stuff. Anybody who takes the bus, and if they see somebody driving in the car, as soon as they have enough money, they're going to get in the car. They're going to get their license. They're going to get a car. It's so much easier. It's so much more freedom to have a car. And that's just the way our society is based on. So, I, And I don't believe this craziness is ahead of the curve or tip of the sphere. I think that's kind of silly as well. Um, because we can't really change the world at the municipality level climate-wise these little little things like this especially when our population is 40 million we have like horrible people that are polluting the planet around the world like china across the world even the united states like their, well their that's a whole bigger big issue stuff. ash and we can certainly get into that one whether uh, small steps do help but uh, i think you do raise a good point uh, in there and uh, that is the reality of the cars and i hear you on that one i am going to move to the next caller here just because we have so many ed is in burnaby and ed points out that there is another level of headache in care homes due to cars and mobilities. What do you mean by that, Ed? Well, I think that um, people that are handicapped and people that uh, can't drive a car and people that uh, just don't want to drive anymore, very elderly, it could be ideal because you're going to use, you know, skip the dishes and Uber and whatever, it's costly, very costly to bring anything in or go anywhere, but they're certainly not going to go on a bike to get groceries somewhere. I appreciate okay. the call, Ed, and uh, you make a good point. Here's another one when it comes to cost savings. I know in our own strata costs and going through a budget, uh, snow removal for uh, for our complex, for the streets and for the cars uh, so we can move around is one of the huge budget items. Julian, do you ever hear anything much about that? I'm sorry, about uh, cost items? Yes, no removal, the just so you could accommodate cars, like in the lower mainland, uh, where our complex has uh, many units, but we have to remove the snow for the cars and the residents, and that's a huge cost item, so you're saving money there. Yeah, so uh, for most households, uh, transportation is their second highest uh, budget item uh, because of the high cost of car ownership. And uh, that is... Um, when you move over to alternatives, there's significant cost savings from every car you reduce to your budget. And car-free, obviously, is the most cost-effective uh, method. And uh, in a neighborhood like we're building, like it's pretty much only single-detached housing in that area. And these homes are uh, $1.3 million and above. They're 50 to 80 years old. Uh, maintenance costs are quite high. Um, our homes are going to be more affordable to buy, more affordable to maintain, and they're going to support a more affordable lifestyle. So in terms of like attainability, 
these are significantly more attainable in this area. There's so many more things I wish we could have touched on with you uh, with this. It's such a great topic. And Ed, thank you, by the way, for the phone call. Julian West, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And to the listeners we didn't get to, there is the buzz line 604-331-2899 if you want to weigh in there. Sorry we didn't get to a number of different calls there. But uh, appreciate this. Julian, have a great afternoon. Thanks so much, Bruce. Let's talk human rights and some very strong words in this one. Is Canada really the country that can be so proud of its human rights record? Well, here's a quote, and I'm going to read this before we bring in our guest. The quote is, At a time when human rights in Canada and around the world are under assault like never before, there is one word that describes the Canadian government's lackluster approach to dealing with human rights at home and abroad, and that word is phony. Well, that's a very, very strong statement, and perhaps it comes with a little bit of emotion and some examples to back it up. And for that, we bring in the founder of the Canadian United Against Hate, uh, Farid Khan. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm still looking at that statement, and boy, um, where are we going with this? Uh, Why so strong with the language? Well, for years, uh, not just this Canadian government, but previous uh, governments under the Conservatives have talked about how Canada is this paragon of virtue when it comes to defending human rights. Um, Certainly, the current uh, Liberal government under Justin Trudeau has often stated, um, both at home and abroad, how Canada is a defender of the international legal order and defends human rights. But if you look at the actual record, um, Canada defends human rights selectively. Apparently, some people deserve to have their human rights uh, protected and action taken to penalize those who are violating human rights and committing human rights atrocities, while others don't. Well, it's not even defending human rights. Quite often when we go internationally, we um, encourage other governments to, uh, to improve their human rights records. If we're not doing that at home, uh, that's going to be problematic. If we're not seen to be doing it at home, that's also problematic. Let's start uh, talking about Canadian human rights first. What have you identified as really a bit of a problem that doesn't really back up the reputation when it comes to our human rights? Well, certainly the case of Indigenous people in Canada is first and foremost. We are a nation founded on Indigenous genocide, um, uh, residential schools. We're still uh, operating up until the 1990s. And, uh, you know, we had uh, circumstances where um, previous governments refused to look into the case of murdered and missing Aboriginal women and the um, recommendations that were made by that inquiry as well as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the vast majority of those recommendations have still not been adopted. So that's just with Indigenous people. But in the case of human rights more broadly, and charter rights specifically, there are 26 instances where uh, charter rights were violated by provincial governments by using the notwithstanding clause. 
And if, for people who don't know what the notwithstanding clause is, it's basically a get-out-of-jail-free card for provincial governments who want to um, override fundamental rights in the Charter. And uh, 26 times it's been used, with Quebec being the worst offender, um, violating Charter rights 17 times. And this is unacceptable in a nation that claims to be a defender of human rights and stands up for human rights. And the federal government which has the power under the Constitution to disallow such, well, basically any laws, but certainly um, laws that uh, violate rights, it has never um, resorted to those powers. Now, when we talk about human rights, uh, one of the biggest defenses, whether it's uh, internationally or even at home, is this idea of the preservation of our culture. That certainly is the idea behind the notwithstanding clause in Quebec. How do you square that, which uh, may be a very legitimate thing, with respect for human rights? Well, I think you can put in place mechanisms and uh, and programs to preserve culture, but violating the fundamental civil rights and human rights of individuals to do that is um, is absolutely wrong. Look, cultures evolved throughout human history. Cultures have evolved. There are cultures that uh, existed at one time that don't for various reasons. And today we are, of course, more aware of culture, and we try to preserve um, certain aspects of culture. But if that is done by basically saying to a person, because of some identity that they have, in the case of Quebec's Bill 21, Muslims, Sikhs, and Jews, well, you know what? We're not going to allow you to um, practice your faith uh, and hold certain jobs because you are of that faith. That is, um, that's a violation of their rights, not under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but also under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a document, a UN document, which Canada um, helped to draft uh, when the UN was created. The group is Canadians United Against Hate, and the founder is Fareed Khan. And today there was a statement that was presented on the eve of International Human Rights Day. That statement came at the West Block of Parliament, and it was made by uh, by our guest, Fareed Khan. Um, what is it that you really need the government to know and to hear and to listen to in order to get any sort of action when it comes to human rights? Well, um, just a preamble to that uh, response. Canada was one of the nations that was the architect of the international legal order after World War II. The foundational documents of the UN, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Genocide Convention, were documents that Canada was integral in drafting. And um, there was this this, uh, optimism about the world would be a much better place after the war, given all the atrocities that had been witnessed. But now here we are... um, you know, almost uh, more than 70 years later, and uh, we seem to have forgotten the lessons that came out of World War II about how integral human rights are and that they should not be sacrificed for anything. And unfortunately, our government, both federally and, of course, our provincial governments, have been shown that they are willing to sacrifice human rights if it is politically expedient. And that's unacceptable. So, you know, for indigenous people in Canada, black people in Canada who, who are um, subjected to uh, police brutality and profiling, Muslims who've been um, subjected to uh, scrutiny for no reason under national security laws, um, they've all had their rights violated. Overseas, we've got atrocities being 
committed. Right now in China, there is an actual genocide happening on the same scale as what the Nazis did during World War II. And yet Canada has done very little other than issue some public statements. We've got a genocide happening in uh, Myanmar, still ongoing. And while Canada initially took leadership, since then it has done very little to help the genocide case that's happening at the International Court of Justice. Um, you know, the Palestinians have been suffering brutality and atrocities for decades um, under Israeli uh, domination, and yet the Canadian government does nothing. So where is human rights in, in, the, uh, in the Canadian government uh, set of principles about what we are as a nation? And yet at the same time, I grew up with this notion that uh, being Canadian, it meant that you stood up for human rights uh, at home, but also around the world. And uh, I also had this notion of a strong peacekeeping force uh, that would be in places like Haiti or Cyprus, standing up for what was seen to be the right thing to do. Um, and everything in that is a disconnect from everything that uh, I'm hearing out of you, or a lot of what I'm hearing out of you. And it shows that we actually may have some work to do. How do we get back on track? Well, I think uh, events like today certainly call attention to it and talk, you know, people like yourself, um, allowing um, people like me who are human rights activists, uh, a platform to talk about this raises awareness. But Canadians, it's, it's up to Canadians actually to say, we have an image of ourselves of who we are and one of that part of that image is that we are defenders of human rights regardless of what the situation is so whether it's here at home when provincial governments are violating charter rights we're going to stand up against those governments and we expect the federal government to basically be the adult in the room um, and take action to defend rights when they are being violated and not uh, basically wait four or five years while they work with their way through the courts and meanwhile people's lives are being turned up upside down. And internationally, when Canada goes out and says it's a defender of human rights, it can't be just a political talking point, okay? It has to be followed up by real action. So as in the case of China, um, you know, maybe uh, Canada could be, you know, one among a, na a group of nations that can take China to the International Court of Justice or the inter International Criminal Court. Um, in the case of India, we've got literally a fascist government that uh, that uh, admires the ideals of Hitler and Narendra Modi, whose followers um, uh, have uh, Mein Kampf as part of their um, go-to material, which has called for the genocide of 200 million Muslims in India. And yet Canada is pursuing a free trade deal with India. This cannot be allowed to happen with countries that have no... Um, uh, no care for uh, defending the human rights of minorities uh, under their control. Well, this is part of it. Uh, we still have international trade missions uh, to places like India and to China. And uh, and even today, even, uh, you know, when we have so much focus on the Chinese government interfering with uh, some of our communications and contracts uh, with the RCMP for protecting their uh, communications uh, between their own members. We still have word of police stations being set up in this country by a Chinese government. We're still trading. We're still trading with China. Um, what do you think is the message there? Is it uh, something where we have to say, hey, it's time to not do that? Or is it, no, by being a trading partner, we come in strong and encourage human rights around the back end? 
Well, um, the second part of your question, we've been trying to do trade for China since the 1990s. If you recall, under Jean Chrétien, we had these Team Canada um, trips to China where he took a huge team of uh, politicians and business people to sign deals in China. And that was supposed to help... um, to uh, basically transition China from an authoritarian dictatorship into a uh, democracy eventually. Instead, what we've had as China has grown richer and richer, they've used that wealth to actually um, clamp down even more on rights in China. Um, The Uyghurs aren't the only uh, people who are being targeted by the Chinese government. Christians have been targeted. Um, If you recall, the Falun Gong movement have been targeted, and other ethnic minorities have been targeted. And the fact is, the current leader, um, Premier Xi, uh, under his leadership, China has now transitioned into an ethno-supremacist state, and it is now threatening um, its neighbors and trying to uh, throw its weight around uh, you know, way beyond its borders. And, uh, you know, can you imagine what would happen if um, uh, we had uh, more Chinese government uh, companies controlling the Canadian economy? I think that uh, we need to rethink how we approach China. I think the government is doing that with this new Indo-Pacific strategy. But in the meantime, I think that uh, given that we've got a government in China that operates an economy where there are many industries that are based on forced or slave labor, the fact that it is literally murdering people because they dare to stand up for their rights, um, uh, I think that uh, this should say to us, I don't think we want to do business uh, with uh, somebody like that. Now, people that uh, follow you or turn out to events like today, uh, are we worried about uh, some of their security, uh, given what we found out about uh, foreign uh, surveillance? Well, I think that anyone who is speaking out about uh you know, important human rights issues overseas should always be concerned about security. One of the um, speakers we had today was someone from the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. And, uh, you know, he told me that, yeah, he and other people who uh, he works with have received uh, death threats and, uh, um, you know, threatening phone calls. Um, There was a Uyghur rights activist, a Canadian, Hussein Chalil, um, who was overseas uh, visiting family, not in China, but overseas at another, in another country. He was abducted by China, tried in China, convicted, and he's been in prison for 16 years. So this is the level that, um, that a government like China will go to. Even, um, you know, India, you've got people who are supporters of the BJP party, which is Narendra Modi's party, which is a fascist party, and they are now um, organized in Canada, and they are trying to target uh, Muslims who speak out against the human rights atrocities being committed in India. This, this is something that, uh, you know, that Canadians need to be concerned about, that these sorts of things are being brought home here in our country, and that the safety of people like myself and others who speak out uh, in defense of human rights of persecuted minorities are actually under threat. You know, uh, what's going to happen next? Um, uh, like, I've had death threats made against me, which I report to police. Right. But um, I continue to do what I do because I believe in justice and I believe in, in helping those people who are oppressed and persecuted for no other reason than the fact that they exist. 
And I appreciate your time with us. Uh, it's not easy to shine a spotlight on some of these things, and uh, especially in the climate that we're in right now, and finding out that the level of uh, surveillance and threats is a lot higher than uh, than we've known in the past. Fareed Khan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Yes, the owners of a Vancouver restaurant and whiskey bar are now declaring a victory of sorts. But this comes five years after provincial liquor inspectors seized $40,000 worth of product right off their shelves. Fett's Whiskey Kitchen will get the booze back, but only after they cease to hold a liquor license and they pay a fine of $3,000. But, you know, when you start talking about a five-year fight, the first thing that comes to my mind, you know, the legal bills and some of the other damage in there. To talk about that is Eric Fergie, co-owner of Fett's Whiskey Kitchen. Uh, Eric, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I've also got my partner, Allura Fergie, here as well. Ah, both of you. And you know what? Uh, To both of you, I'd like to say congratulations, but... uh, You know, I don't know if this is congratulations or not, because it's been a five-year battle with this. And yeah, I I get it. $40,000 worth of whiskey back, that's great. But uh, has there been a lot of damage in there already? The the damage is, the damage was done by the government with an unauthorized, uh, warrantless uh, search and seizure of our premises, and that's what we took offense with. As for the whiskey, we're... It just says that we won. We were right. The government was wrong. They shouldn't have done what they did. Now, Eric and or Allura, bring us back through the story of what happened back five years ago that led to this uh, whole struggle in the first place. Uh, Paint us a picture, if you would, with your words of how this came about. Well, there was a complaint made against an establishment in Victoria uh, that sold Scotch malt whiskey. So there are only four venues that were authorized by the society in the province to sell their product. So five years and one day ago, the government started an investigation into the sale of these products at these four licensed establishments. After a seven-week investigation on January 18th, uh, these rogue government actors showed up at our door with uh, in a, a, a rented U-Haul van full of empty boxes, oh. accompanied by two police officers to, uh, uh, for the sole purpose, as they said, we're seizing these, these bottles as evidence in an ongoing investigation. Because it was an investigation, they needed to follow through with their investigative powers and follow those rules, which included a search warrant. But they came in under the guise of an inspection. Uh, when there's an inspection, we must abide by their questioning and answer everything they ask. But because there was an investigation, they needed to issue uh, my partner who was there, Allura, a charter caution. They did not. And that's and is that they didn't follow the rules and they run ran roughshod over the charter of rights and freedom 
know, I can hear still a lot of the emotion in your voice when you talk about this. And if uh, I went through a five-year battle over this, I would have that same emotion. It uh, hurts the reputation of uh, a business for sure. But um, it acted on a complaint. And that's a big one. Um, Who would complain about this? And uh, why is it of anybody's interest whatsoever? Uh, that's a question that needs to be asked to the person that made the complaint. Sure, it does. Um, but it seems to me almost like it's an overhanded response. Uh, did you have warnings and that type of thing in the first place before they moved in and seized uh, all your product? No, no warnings. We had several liquor inspections, and the liquor inspectors uh, were totally happy with the way we were operating our business, even made comments about all the bottles and how great it looked. So, yeah, there was no warnings, no no conversation, which is another thing that seems to be an issue. Yeah. We consider ourselves partners with the people we do business with, suppliers, government agencies and such, and dialogue is necessary. Sure, dialogue is necessary, but you were also aware of some of the rules that were in place and knew where you stood, um, be it right or be it wrong. Um, did you think that this might be a possibility uh, being rated, or did you think, uh, you know what, uh, we're going to go ahead and do our business, but, um, you know, advocate for change? So, uh, yes, we uh, we felt that if this ever became an issue, there would be dialogue. In our province, what what the issue is, is we do not have licensee to licensee sales. And this is what we've been advocating for. This is what the uh, the Mullen Report was all about. Uh, we spoke with, uh, with David Eby, when he's Attorney General, about this. Any licensee in the province that operates a specialty cocktail, spirit, wine, beer program, uh, ends up usually uh, finding the product outside of the government liquor store. And the reason being is the government liquor store does not stores do not sell the products that we need for our ingredients and to be competitive. And not just competitive within the province, but also competitive with our, our southern neighbors. We have an incredible uh, restaurant and cocktail uh, hospitality industry here. And all the products that are in private liquor stores all come through the government warehouse. So it's, they've, everything has come through the proper channels. And we don't, but many people do buy outside of the government liquor store so that they can make their cocktails with the ingredients they need. And that's a big change we need to see. Absolutely. Now let's fast forward Five years later, uh, the B.C. government has settled with you. Are you happy with the settlement, uh, or is there still some sort of, um, I don't know, regret, bitterness, or anything else left over? Well, we're happy we won. We're looking at it as a win, uh, and we're looking at it as a conversation that, that is going to keep on going on until there is change. So we're we're happy that we can start the conversation, the conversation that we've had for the last five years. But it was going on before that, but we're just, yeah, we're just happy. We won. 
Good. Well, Allura, I know there must have been uh, some legal fees in there that you had to incur. Uh, oh, just a little. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing to get back uh, the product, and a lot of people will talk about that $40,000 worth. But I'm guessing the legal cost is more than $40,000 over five years, right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're looking at about $100,000. And that comes at a time when I know that... Um, you're not looking at continuing on forever. In fact, uh, retirement is on the horizon, right? Resignation. Yes, we, we, we're we're closing this chapter and going on to other other things. So we're not retiring. We're just moving on. Okay. Well, it's good to hear because I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of something about myself. I've gone to other cities uh, with the idea in mind of visiting a city, but also finding out more. And I look at even Portland, Oregon, uh, in my mind, and going into the Whiskey Library there, which I've done before, and sitting down and having, you know, shelves and shelves of the best whiskeys from around the world and enjoying that experience and making a part of my Portland visit. Can that ever happen with today's regulations in Vancouver? No, referring to whiskey, no. Why not? And what needs to change? Licensee to licensee sales. That's uh, giving the, li- the the hospitality licensees in this province the opportunity to purchase uh, for resale any product that is found at the government stores or the private liquor stores. That's what needs to change. Keep in mind that we're in a big city. We have a lot of different uh, government stores to shop at, and we shop at the, all of them. Every time we're on the island, we go to every every place we go. We go and look in government stores so we can find product whiskey to put on our shelves. If you live in Burns Lake, you don't have that opportunity. You know, and, and any smaller communities: Revelstoke, Fernie, Kimberley, Cranbrook. Uh, it's very difficult for these. Uh, uh, operators to have a selection. So Eric and Allura, do you have a voice that's going to continue to push the government uh, for others, not only yourselves, but for others in the future? Or is this uh, something that is kind of lost and you're just going to move on? No, we're, uh, we're in it for the long haul. We're committed. Yeah, we, uh, we love our industry. Our industry has been fantastic uh, to us and we will continue to advocate for our uh, our industry, and we're not going anywhere. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate both of your times and uh, and sharing a story with us about uh, that really is a story behind how enforcement comes into some different rules that are different maybe for BC than most places in the world. Eric and Allura, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You know, over the past several years, there has been more of a focus and more talk about mental health and mental health services. And that, of course, is a good thing. But much of that talk has been centered on adults. And the question comes to when we're talking about youth and uh, and children, are we making the connection and connecting some of the youth and children with the mental health services that they need? Well, there is a bit of an answer to that. And what we're finding out now is more than half 
of Canadian children and youth who access mental health services over the past six months of this year say that they were not easily obtainable. They had difficulty getting those services. Those are the ones that actually got it. And this is according to a study that is published by the Canadian Institute for Health Information. CIHI talked to 4,000 people across the country to get uh, to get to the heart of this. And with us is Shauna McMartin. She is the program lead at the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Shauna, thanks so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, when I hear that, uh, and I hear that uh, half of the people that were contacted say that there was difficulty getting those services, I'm thinking, well, that's uh, that's troubling. That's really sad. What's going on here, Shauna? Absolutely. So, you know, we know the mental health system is complex and, you know, it can be difficult for people to access the services that they need and move between services. Um, We heard things that, you know, feeling overwhelmed, uh, timing like long wait times and services not being provided when needed, uh, as well as limited choices of where and when to get services. So things like appointment hours, schedules and office location were just a few of the top barriers to accessing services among these young Canadians. Are these the ones that are self-identifying as having a uh, an issue or ones that um, somebody else, maybe a parent or a teacher, has identified as in need of uh, mental health services? What uh, What's a cohort here? Yeah, so this is a online survey and it was based on social media recruitment. So people kind of elected to uh, participate in the survey. And in order to be able to respond to the questions and be part of this, um, this number, uh, we were capturing really wanting to get that early intervention. And when we're talking about early, what we mean is that we're identifying and intervening with young people before they're experiencing a lot of impairment or distress from their mental health problems. So early is when their mental health or substance use problems are just starting to affect their everyday life. Um, so having issues at school or doing schoolwork, taking care of things at home, um, getting along with people. Um, so those were all kind of the self-identified way to um, identify someone as having an early need. So difficulty getting those services before we talk about even the needs. What were some of the barriers, exactly. are the barriers and challenges uh, that uh, youth and children face? Yeah, so, you know, they're feeling overwhelmed, uncomfortable, or not knowing how to continue was one of the barriers. That was the top one. Um, as I mentioned, timing, limited choices of where and when to get services, being misunderstood or dismissed, and stigma. But I think what I'm getting at is uh, the ability to actually access health when they do see a problem. Uh, are they mm-hmm. able or running into uh, roadblocks when it comes to just uh, appointments and uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, so, um, you know, the services that we were um, we were kind of including uh, are kind of services in the community. So things like accessing counseling and therapy um, was seen a lot among this group school-based services, crisis support services. So those were kind of the services that people were accessing. Um, we didn't, we don't have the information on, you know, um, who wasn't able to get that access. 
And I think that's what's uh, even more troubling. Those are the ones that managed to get it, and maybe there was some persistence there. But when, obviously, mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, some mental health services and the request for them, I often worry about those that uh, just gave up and uh, weren't yeah. able to get that. There is also, and part of the finding in here is, in general, boys are less likely to ask for help when experiencing mental health or substance use issues. Why is that? Yes, so we did find that fewer boys and young men were accessing those services early um, when we compared them to other gender groups. We know that in general, males are just less likely to access or ask for help for their mental health or substance use issues um, and access fewer services in general. So this is kind of supported in what we're seeing in the trends when we look at the results by gender. That seems like there, and you know, it goes to men, men and mental health. We know that that has been an issue mm-hmm. for years. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess it's going down right into and starting with boys. So I'm not too terribly surprised. What I wonder about is how you actually correct that challenge, and what you could do about it. How are you finding or is there any action that can be taken right now? to reach out in a different way, perhaps, or to get boys and uh, young men, we're talking like uh, 12-year-olds right up to uh, to legal adults, to get them involved in accessing mental health, what can be done? Yeah, so, you know, this is just the starting point. This is our first year collecting this information. So we do really want to monitor the trends over time to see um, how changes might um, and what changes we might see. This information is really to help decision makers understand where more services are needed or how men, how people may experience different issues finding services. So I think that's a great point around, you know, what can be done to make sure that uh, young men are also getting access, but that we're seeing equitable access across all different sociodemographic uh Groups. And I think uh, when we looked at the different barriers that were identified for um, accessing services, they were very similar across all the different um, sociodemographic characteristics. So, you know, starting to improve uh, wait times and um, giving more options about where people can get services or how they get services um, and um, just helping people, you know, not feel overwhelmed. Uh, can really uh, help improve access across, I think, all groups. I know when it comes to um, the education systems across the country, uh, counselors are usually pretty good in knowing what the resources are out there. But um, Mm -hmm. the first person that uh, has any um, indication is going to be your educator, your classroom teacher, perhaps seeing some Mm -hmm. of this. Uh, What sort of um, education do the educators get? Uh, or is there any outreach to them to help them identify mm-hmm. and actually see who is in need of mental health services or maybe at risk? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. And I think it's something for the health system to kind of look at as a whole and how can we make sure that we're delivering uh, care to our youth uh, around mental health in the ways that they need it and in the places that they are most often. Um, I think for us in our survey, you know, we know that the services are diverse and you can get them in a number of settings and we really focused in on the community. Um, We found that most people were accessing counseling and therapy, um, but that about half of children and youth who said they access services um, 
access them in school-based uh, settings. So guidance counselors, social workers, and school nurses. So um, it is a great point of access for them, especially as a first point of access. Um, and I think we just need to make sure that um, everyone has the resources that they need in order to um, give our youth the care. I go into schools now, and uh, even in elementary schools, I see so much uh, indication uh, visually uh, that there is an outreach and support to transgender and non-binary individuals. Uh, But Mm -hmm. this study also found that only, still, even with that, a small portion of transgender non-binaries find people identifying as gay, lesbian, or other sexual orientations, only a small portion of them are finding access to the system or are able to actually uh, be helped out. Why is that? And is that troubling? Mm -hmm. So that's a great point. So we're actually, um, as part of this uh, survey, we collected information on kind of two different concepts, one focusing in on the children and youth, and that was really around that access for that early need. And actually there we did see a higher proportion of transgender and non-binary children and youth getting access. Um, They tend to access services in unique ways, like school or gender-affirming care, and um, in general tend to have higher rates of help-seeking behavior, which could be why we're seeing those high rates of access um, among that group. That being said, when we start to look at a more adult population, so those that are 15 plus, um, and we started to focus in on actually moving between services because most people, their first point of access for mental care, mental health care, is not um, the only one that they need, and they do need to kind of move between services for their care. And when we looked at that, we found that a smaller proportion of transgender non-binary individuals felt that they had the necessary support to navigate between services. So we know there are gender differences in the use of mental health and substance use services, and that people may be experiencing different barriers, which could make them feel less supported when moving between services. Right. We're talking with Shauna McMartin, who is a program lead at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, following this uh, identification that only more or more than half of Canadian youth are able to really find easy access to the mental health services they need. So that is a large portion really having some difficulties. Uh, We also know, and you alluded to this, uh, Shauna, that this is the first year of this study or the first time you've actually taken a look at this. It also lines Mm -hmm. up with the pandemic. So could that be one of the reasons why we're seeing some of these barriers? That's a great point. So this information was collected during the pandemic, and we know that the pandemic has had an impact on mental health and substance use among younger Canadians. Um, Accessing services could have been impacted in many different ways. For example, school closures and shifts to virtual learning limited the support available for children and youth from their network of friends um, and teachers. So that could be impacting, um, you know, issues with access or having more difficulty accessing, Um, as well as we saw a shift Um, in how care was delivered. So in-person appointments uh, often shifted to virtual care. So the ability of service providers to provide virtual care varied. um, And children and youth access to technology and private spaces for some confidential appointments like these um, could have been impacted as well. Okay, Shauna, so next steps. Now we've got the research. Where do we go from here? Absolutely. So we report this information to see how 
the health system is performing. And these new indicators give everyone more information about access to mental health and substance use services. As I mentioned, this is a starting point. This is our first year of reporting. Uh, we will be collecting this information again and are interested to monitor trends to see where improvements could be made. Um, this information can help decision makers understand where more services are needed or how people may experience different issues finding services and where we can start to target some of our resources. Terrific. Well, Shauna, thanks so much for all the work you're doing and for joining us so we have a bit of a better understanding of this issue. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. This one is billed as a sit back and fill your soul with music. The music that fits the feeling of hope and new beginnings. What are we talking about? Well, it is music for the winter solstice. And it is coming to Main Street's Intimate Heritage Hall. Now, this event sells out every year. But joining us now to talk about why and some of the magic and enchantment behind this is David Pay, the Artistic Director of Music on Main. David, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Now, tell us a little bit for the uninitiated, uh, what they would find when they go to the winter solstice at uh, Heritage Hall. Well, it's a concert where people come on their own or people come in groups. It's something I wanted to create nearly 10 years ago for this time of year when there's so many beautiful musical traditions. But to have something that was secular and something that's just about filling up our soul and remembering that no matter how dark and cold and rainy it gets outside, the light will return. So the idea is to listen to beautiful music together and to just have that kind of the heartfelt feeling at this time of year without any of the stress. You know, I love that idea. And I started off uh, the show this afternoon talking about, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the days are getting shorter. Let's admit that. And even though I see some breaks out the window right now, we have been dealing with a lot of uh, weather that's just kind of dreary. And I'm not even talking about the cold, but, uh, you know, it's it feels so dark. So to turn to really getting into the mood of the holidays, sometimes we need a little bit of a pick-me-up. And I think music is the magic uh, thing there, isn't it? I, th- I think music is the magic thing. It's something that we can use to change our moods, but it's also something that we can use to amplify the feelings that we're having right now. And, you know, you talk about whether it's the weather outside or, or the news, there is a lot of heaviness this time of year. And to, to hear beautiful music that might be written today or might be written hundreds of years ago that helps remind us that these feelings have been around always and the opportunity for that positive change, for that warmth returning, for the good feelings also comes, whether it's through music or just being together. Absolutely. Now, David, tell us a little bit about uh, who we would hear from and some of the music uh, that we would come across this year. This year, we have a real mix, a quartet of musicians. Rachel Kiyo-Iwatha is a classical pianist, but she plays a lot of music that gets written, especially for her. Robin Jacob has a band um, called um, Only a Visitor, and she performs really cool pop music. There's a tenor named Asita Tenakun and a cellist named Jonathan Lowe, both of whom come from more classical experiences, but, but play other music. And so we'll hear everything from Robin Jacobs' songs that are written for a pop band to music for solo cello by Bach. 
and pieces that were written over the course of the last few years, especially for this concert. There's a piece by a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer named Caroline Shaw from America, and she's collaborated with everybody from, from Kanye West to Rosalia, but she also writes music for small classical ensembles, and there's a song that the audience gets to sing along that we do every year since Caroline wrote it. Um, so it's, it's a real mix of old things, new things, warm things, dark things. And, um, you know, you were asking what the uninitiated would expect. Um, and, and I feel like this is a place where you don't really have to know the music that you're going to listen to. You just have to come knowing that you're going to have an experience that will fill up your soul and send you off into the evening feeling a bit calmer and a bit, bit more connected. You know, uh, some of us uh, have different ones that are just uh, magical for us. And you're right, you don't have to be able to identify necessarily who it is that uh, d- that even wrote a piece, even a classic piece. Uh, for me, it's like Bach. I, I think Bach at this time of the year is just so powerful. But that goes right back to my youth and some memories. Um, for others, it's kind of like, oh, yes, I know that. But it's um, it's just in, in, entrenched in our memories. So, David, I've got to ask you, as somebody involved in music, what is it? Uh, do you have any memories uh, yourself that just come through at this time of year? You know, for me, often I'm not a professional singer or a trained singer or anything, but it's those chances when we're together and we all just in the car burst into a Christmas carol or we all sing happy birthday together or we're even just listening to a favorite old pop song and, and it could be something from our youth. It could be something from our kids' youth and we all start singing together. And that I think happens in my world and with my family, that happens more this time of year than other times of year. And so anytime we burst into song and have a little sing along that for me, just like, yeah, fills up my heart and makes me love this time of year so much more. We're talking with David Pay, who is the Artistic Director for Music on Maine. The event, of course, is uh, Music for the Winter Solstice, and it's at Heritage Hall on Main Street. And this does sell out um, kind of every year, doesn't it? It does. You know, we when I started it nine years ago now, I was hoping it would become a tradition. And I think the combination of having a chance to listen to something that doesn't come from religious music at this time of year something that really celebrates all of the good feelings about this time of year. Um, It it has become a tradition that people come to every December. And so it does sell out. It sells out a a bit early. You can come choose your seat, have a drink at the bar. We're going to have hot chocolate this year as well as wine and beer. So it's it's a really nice feeling. And people tell me whether they come on their own or they come with family, they, they always feel welcome there. I think also uh, Main Street uh, is, you know, just the area around Main is uh, is so magical uh, this time of year. I think of uh, all the little restaurants and neat little uh, shops in there. So that's all part of it. I guess it uh, kind of reflects some of uh, some of the culture that's already there, isn't it? It's music on Main's been on Main Street for the last fifteen years, and we love getting back to Heritage Hall and. Yeah, we, we bump into friends who run restaurants, we check out all the little shops, and it really does feel like a, a very cool and interesting part of town. Okay, so let's get down to some of the information that people need to know if they are intrigued. Uh, which nights are we talking about, and how do you get tickets? Yeah, on Wednesday, December 14th, and Thursday, December 15th, 
Music on Main's presenting music for the winter solstice. And as you were talking about, it's at Heritage Hall, which is on Main Street at 15th. And um, all of that information is on Music on Main's website, musiconmain.ca. And you can easily buy tickets there and learn more about some of the concerts and videos that we offer. Terrific. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, spending time joining us, and uh, I look forward to it. That, of course, by the way, because days are slipping by so so quickly, Wednesday and Thursday of next week. So we do encourage you to go to the uh, website as quickly as possible, search out Music on Main, and uh, get more information about it. David Pay, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.